1: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The fire in Big Sur that broke out over the weekend had National Weather Service officials describing it as surreal, given that it's January and the region just went through record-setting storms that should have kept fires at bay. But California's wildfires have been defying expectations for some time now, And in her latest piece for the New York Times Magazine, Elizabeth Wild grapples with the state's year-round wildfires and the toll of still expecting a normal that no longer exists. Liz Wild's piece is titled, This is Not the California I Married. Liz Wild, welcome to Forum. Having me. The relationship metaphor, you also describe California in your piece as a bonus partner in your marriage why did the relationship metaphor feel most representative to you of what you what California is like for you
2: well it was both metaphoric and not you know my <laughs> my husband and i actually had these conversations early on you know we're both writers so there was both the joke of we should have a bonus venture capitalist partner but then also that part of our lives, like a really deep part of it was living here in California. And that was bringing us a lot of joy and a lot of beauty and at times a lot of headache. (laughs) And of course, the world has really changed over the past 20 years. Um, And it does feel like an ongoing relationship that you have to negotiate in the same kind of way.
1: Yeah. You also say the relationship was flawed from the beginning. Um, can you talk about some of the things that made you realize that the relationship always had problems?
2: <laughs> sure. And some of that is personal and some of that is political. So, of course, the whole project of California was not quite the fantasy as presented in the California dream of course you know this was this was not our land when an awful lot of current Californians got here and their you know parents and grandparents got here so partly the dream was sort of based on a myth of whose land this was and partly it was sort of unsustainable in an ecological way, like how we live here is not quite sustainable. So I was just sort of trying to get at all of the ways in which the ways we were living were going to catch up with us. And we're also based on kind of glossing over how we got here.
1: Yeah, Um I think you describe some of the the moments of breaking through basically the California promise, um, her gorgeousness that, that sort of um, created an illusion of a certain level of health in the relationship, where things like when you did have be escorted um, over flaming hills by police or when you were getting texts because your parents lived in Napa and Napa was burning or when PG&E started doing so-called public safety power shutoffs that that the foundation of California was starting to show its its fault lines basically um you, yeah 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 go ahead is there more you want to say I mean about these that?
2: are really visceral experiences I think for pretty much everybody who lives here at this point that you know we've all had our lives bump up against the planetary crisis in ways that were both shocking and mm-hmm. if we were honest with ourselves totally expected
1: yeah I mean the orange sky was a huge moment for a lot of people as well <laughs> The one that happened in September of 2020, my God.
2: Yes. I mean, in that, I feel like you just sort of have these moments of realization of the world is not quite as it seemed or not quite as I was telling myself that it was. Yeah. Um, and those, those, I mean, those experiences, stick with all of us and there's a desire to put them to the side, but there's also a real need to think them through.
1: Well, I want to invite our listeners to share if they had that ecological proof point moment as well (laughs) that told them that California is no longer what they knew it to be. Um, And you can share that listeners at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can Post them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. Or perhaps you have a word to describe your own relationship with California that you want to share. And if so, please do that as well. We're talking with Liz Weil, a feature writer for New York Magazine, whose recent piece for the New York Times Magazine is, This Isn't the California I Married. So, So you're grappling with this reality, right, all of these different things that are happening that are showing you that the health of your relationship with California may be in jeopardy. And you end up consulting a climate futurist named Alex Steffen. Can you tell us about him a little bit and how he framed California's current crisis? wildfire. Yes.
2: So my conversation with Alex was so revelatory and helpful to me. Um, So he lives in Berkeley. He's just a really smart guy who's been thinking about where we are with the planet and where we're going for a long time. Uh, And one of the first things he said to me is that, There's a really strong desire to see that day in 2020 with the orange sky as post-apocalyptic, like here we are in the aftermath. And he was saying, we're not post-apocalyptic. You know, we're all still, for the most part, getting up and going to work in the morning and things are ongoing. We're trans-apocalyptic. We're in the middle of this ongoing linked series of crises. And it doesn't sound like the most comforting thing in the world. (laughs) I don't know that that's exactly the alternative that I want. (laughs) It was really helpful to me to have some language to put on where we are and what is happening. And another thing he said to me that was extremely helpful was that we're in the middle of a discontinuity. And by that, he meant that we're in a moment where all the experience and expertise that we've built up over time is not quite working for us anymore. Like We have, in a way, failed to keep up with the present. Like we are behind. And what we think of as the future is actually the present. And what we think of as the present is actually the past. Um, And it's, it's a very abstract thought. But in some ways, we continue to talk about the climate crisis as something that will be happening in the future. And it's happening right now. And the sooner we let ourselves think really clearly about where we are and what is happening, the easier it'll be to deal with it.
1: So you said a lot there. And just to go back to this idea of trans-apocalyptic and what you described as like this linked series of crises. So you mean by just the constant, I think this is what you say in your piece, the constant engagement with ecological realities. Like we have to constantly deal with things like fires and floods or or dry wells and there's really no way of getting out of it like we're forced to do that so that's what being in a state of trans apocalypse is but layered on top of that you're saying is our inability to even recognize that we are currently living it. Like we have not yet adjusted to accepting that as our reality and instead are still sort of living in the state where we're expecting that to happen.
2: In a way, yeah, we're getting there. But but um, yes, we're still, I think, clinging to the past. Like people still constantly use this phrase, the new normal, Uh And I think for myself and a lot of people who think a lot and study climate and write about climate, like that idea is a little anachronistic in and of itself. We're not getting to a new normal. We're in a prolonged period of change. And we need to accept that instead of sort of thinking like, okay, we were in a normal and yeah, things are a little different and we're going to get to a new normal. We have to really accept the the trans, transitory, transitional nature of where we are. And, and it's
1: hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. Well, I think my favorite line from from Stefan that you quoted was that you are unprepared for what has already happened um, is sort of the state that you're in. But as you say, it's really hard. He says that it comes with real grief and and a real sense of loss, right?
2: Yes, and I think that there's no avoiding that grief. Um, I spent most of the past two years writing about climate, and before that, I I didn't write about climate, and I think like everybody else who immerses themselves in this, there's a, a lot of sadness that you have to deal with, and there is there is just going to be a period of grief, and we all need to get through that. And like all kinds of grief, once you've lived with that, you can get to a point of acceptance where it's easier to be hopeful. It's easier to move forward. Um, But part of what Stephens is saying, I think, is the avoidance of that grief, the avoidance of thinking about where we really are. And so we find ourselves in a moment of Ongoing wildfires and our houses are not hardened. We haven't done the work that we sort of knew we needed to do. Mm-hmm. We were unprepared for the thing that has just happened. It's true with the pandemic as well. It's not It's not only useful <laughs> to think this way. I think in terms of climate, I think it's a really useful frame for our moment generally.
1: Yeah, that we are um, unprepared for what has already happened (laughs) with regard to the pandemic as well. Well, let me go to caller Suzanne in Oakland. Hi, Suzanne.
3: Hi. Uh, Let me see. Turn down my radio.
1: Can you hear me? I can. Okay.
3: Yeah, I just was um, kind of feeling just what she was saying is that we have, I'm a senior and. We have been hearing about things would get this way for about five decades from scientists, ecologists, and um, if we kept stripping the land and over-logging and over-fishing and, you know, it's just, it's it's we've been hearing it and always having to fight big corporations and fight them back, and now we're at this already tipped points and um some people are just waking up to it and are kind of upset about it and it's like at this point we have to take radical steps Mm. to try and help the planet um that provides for us and um I don't know. It's 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 like we 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 have to. It's it's it, it gets so frustrating having to fight uh, the powers that have all the big money and uh, hold things up. But um, yeah. I don't know. We just have to fighting through it and 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 fight against it because the planet is screaming.
1: Suzanne thanks I really appreciate your point about kind of knowing for a long time that this was coming just in terms of if you were taking stock of all the the things that we were doing related to the land that would contribute to these terrible wildfires and year-round wildfires that we're seeing now and Liz Weil, um Wondering if you have a reaction to what Suzanne is saying and, and just about fully being able to wrap our minds around how we got here. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think she's exactly right. Like for decades, climate scientists have been telling us what we needed to do. We need to cut emissions for decades Forest ecologists have been telling us that suppressing fires is going to catch up with us. It's not a sustainable way that uh, California has a Mediterranean climate. The ecosystem needs fire. And if we exclude it, it's just going to come roaring back. Um, And it's really, really infuriating and painful to have to grapple with all of that, all of the feet dragging that we have done in so many different ways that is making this moment more difficult and more urgent.
1: And Megan writes on Instagram, as a modern Native Californian, for me, it always comes back to the need to reignite and respect the wisdom and practices of our Indigenous people who have known and worked with this land so intimately. There will be much healing to gain ecologically, socially, and economically in acknowledging and supporting our Native people who are still here and fighting for our rights to a clean and balanced environment. You touch on this as well, Liz Weil.
2: Yes, and I think there's finally some movement in this conversation and some acknowledgement from our all parties that this is exactly right, that we took this land from people who knew how to take care of it and who were taking care of it well, and we need to both return to the same kinds of practices with regard to fire and, and lots of other things as well that Native Californians have been practicing. And we also need to give land back Uh, and that it's all connected, that you can't solve one of these problems in isolation.
1: And even as we are talking about all the ways that we have potentially, well, all the ways that we have made mistakes, both in the ways that we've directly contributed to it and the compounding factors that have led to what we're seeing now, right? As you were saying, in terms of, you know, the climate crisis and the fact that, you know, we have moved into more wildlands, we've logged, we've, we've logged, you know, big, old fire resistant trees, we've, we've, um, we've practiced suppression tactics, all of those you tick off in your piece, but not so much to kind of further throw us into, like, a helpless state of nihilism, but actually, you you tick those off because you say that it's crucial to processing the crisis and how we deal with it. How did you come to that?
2: You know, we need to know how we got here. Partly, I came to it just from talking to a lot of people who who work with FIRE in the past few years. And all of these things get endlessly recited they are known that none of this is news to people who have been paying attention and i think for people who've been a little avoidant not only do we all need to catch up on the facts we need to catch up on the idea that people have known all this for a long long time um and that's part, I think, of meeting the moment is that realizing this is not news, as you were saying a moment ago. So I wanted to bring that tone to the essay of, look, we know all this, and an awful lot of readers know all this, too, you know, that there are so many Californians who basically gave themselves PhDs in fire ecology, just listening to the news and paying attention to their surroundings. Um Because of of where we are and where we live. And an important piece of this that we haven't touched on yet is there's so many more Californians than there were a few decades ago. And for lots of reasons having to do with housing policy, Californians now live all over what people refer to as the wildland urban interface. You know, people live all in there among the trees, which is a dangerous place to be living. Um, And we need to accept that too.
1: Well, Joel tweets, how would I describe our relationship with California? Dysfunctional. Honestly, we would have never moved here if we had known we were going to deal with all of these problems. We are planning our escape. Monica tweets, I used to live in the East Bay Hills, was born and raised in the South Bay. But in 2017, I started to see the writing on the wall. The local fire chief told me it's when, not if, there's a fire in the hills I lived in. I moved my family one year ago out of the Wildland Urban Interface. We're talking about a change in California. Uh we're talking about living in the Trans Apocalypse with Liz Weil and we'll have more with her after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Elizabeth Weil, a feature writer for New York Times, for New York Magazine, whose recent article for the New York Times Magazine is called This Isn't the California I Married. We're talking about the climate crisis and California's wildfire problem in what I would say personal and philosophical terms, as Liz Weil herself has grappled with this and written about it. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and reflections as well in terms of your ecological proof point moments that have told you that California isn't what you've known it to be or your thoughts on how you would describe your relationship with California. And let me go to Wayne in Fairfield. Hi, Wayne.
0: Hi, how are you? Thank you for uh, taking my call. You know, as a longtime listener and a long time, my daughter's a, a climate scientist and I'm in medicine. And my analogy that I use, part of the problem is we're reaching people right now that are already buying into this now. They, they realize it now. We still need to reach the people that don't buy into this, that aren't seeing this, because California is not the only state that's gonna have this problem at some point, mm-hmm. or isn't. And the analogy that I use to describe it, because I treat patients that have chronic illnesses or are, have debilitating or even fatal illnesses, is that this is like an illness. And what, the way that I try to describe it to people that are in doubt about this or try to normalize this is I say, I, I reach out to them and I say that, you know, you have to consider, let's talk about a family member that has a chronic illness. California is like that family member that has a chronic illness. And what we're, what we're describing right now, as far as change goes, is a treatment option to make California well again. It may never return to what it was in our lifetime but we can at least make it a livable environment again. And it is a living environment. It's alive. Mm. So by describing it that way, I find that I tend to reach more people. Um, and I was wondering what your what your guest's thoughts were on that.
1: Wayne, thanks. Lizwa. what do you think?
2: I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've, I've thought about this analogy a bit too. And I think it's similar also in the way that no one wants to get a diagnosis of a chronic illness. You know, it's shocking and upsetting. But then once you accept it, you can you can make a treatment plan. You can make progress. <laughs> you can sort of work with optimism again in a way that until you go to the doctor, get a diagnosis and make a plan, you remain pretty stuck. So I think it's a really helpful way to think about the climate crisis and
4: in California in particular.
1: Let me go next to caller Cheryl in Moorpark. Hi, Cheryl.
4: Hi. Um, I wanted to say I think that the article and I saw the article in the Times. I just thought it was a little naive and ridiculous because I think the problem is the United States and what's going on here. We've got climate deniers. We've got portions of the country that think that uh, Biden wasn't properly elected. But on climate, we have always been ahead. And, And just even look at the new composting laws. So I find that California is the beacon. And I really am so tired of this. California bashing whenever I travel outside of California, too. Well,
1: so that's let, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. You let me ask for Liz Wiles' reaction. Like, should we be focusing so much on California when it seems like we're we're ahead in terms of understanding <laughs> understanding the climate crisis, as Cheryl is saying, than, than, say, the rest of the country?
2: We may be ahead of some, but we're all incredibly behind. So, well... <laughs> Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you reading, even though it wasn't for you. And I totally accept whatever feelings you have about the piece. I don't think we're doing well enough here either. Uh, So from my perspective, just because you're better than some doesn't mean you get to take a pass and stop thinking about it. All
1: right. So then let's talk about that a little bit because you do offer some thoughts. So after you, you sort of help us understand all the things that got us here to this point in terms of what we're experiencing in California, um, you do also talk about, okay, the next step is now figuring out how to settle into this trans apocalyptic state that we're living in and figure out how we can work for the best present and the best future. Um, in doing so, you you share a couple of things that are like pitfalls to this. And one is something you describe as a moral hazard that we have to address. <laughs> Can you talk about what that moral hazard is?
2: Sure. Uh, so it's an economic term of basically... Uh, it's a way of describing people taking on more risk than they might have otherwise, because they don't need to bear the full cost. So in the context of fire, uh, one way this plays out is that people move into the wildland urban interface into, you know, the exurbs away from the cities, because it is cheaper. Housing is cheaper, but housing and life is cheaper out there because residents don't need to absorb the firefighting costs. Those are essentially paid for by the federal government. And life would not be cheaper out there if local communities had to absorb those costs. And if that were in play, maybe we would be building more urban housing and that housing would become more affordable, which is really what we need to be doing to deal with the climate crisis. So there are all these ways in which our regulations and our thinking doesn't really match the moment.
1: Yes, it doesn't require us, as you say, to really think through in terms of bearing the full cost. Well, Bill writes, How we got here? A century of suppressing wildfires, which allowed unburnt wood to build up. How we get out, get rid of the dead trees and brush, either go through the land and pull out the fuel for fires or do control burns. Liz, well talk about managed wildfire. Versus suppressing wildfire in this in this context of um of the trans apocalypse and in in this context of us coming to terms with the full brunt of the cost of not making shifts. so can you talk a little bit about about managed wildfire and why this in and of itself, even as Bill points out, we know is necessary, is still a really hard thing for people to be willing to do.
2: Sure. So there's managed wildfire and there's prescribed wildfire, and I'm going to break those two apart. Um, So managed wildfire is basically Managing natural ignitions. It's basically saying a wildfire has started and we're not going to suppress it fully because we know that we have this incredible backlog of what, you know, people call fuel. There's too much... there's too much vegetation out there we know it needs to burn so we're going to let this natural ignition run its course to some extent that's managed wildfire prescribed wildfire is deciding we are going to introduce fire to the land as people call it. we're going to light a fire we're going to burn up some of this vegetation and we're going to do it in a controlled way when the conditions are right and we need to do both of these things Uh, they become politically contentious. Nobody likes smoke. There's always going to be some risk with managed wildfire in particular. There was a lot of political controversy this past summer over the Tamarack fire. Uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but we know we need to do this. The state knows this. We are not doing nearly enough prescribed burning, even though there's a lot more talk about doing more. We need to actually get it done.
1: So um, this listener writes, I've lived in seven other states and spent time in a couple dozen more. A bad day in California is still better than a good one anywhere else. So let me ask you this, Liz While After writing this piece, looking at the full scope of how we got here, thinking about what it means to settle into it and get out of it, how do you feel about California now? Um, has your sense of the nature of your relationship with it changed?
2: You know, I still really love California and the beautiful days here are so beautiful. <laughs> you know, This past weekend was extraordinary. So I feel for me, it's less that I think there's some perfect place elsewhere uh, than I feel like I needed to grapple with. And I think a lot of us do with, you know, what, what is California now? How do we live here? Well, Um, and what do we need to do to take care of this place that has given us all so much?
1: And it feels like we're hearing a range of responses. I mean, there are people who are educating themselves and wrapping around their, their minds around the scope of the problem. There are people who are, are sad. There are people who are thinking about leaving. And there are people who are really focused on the best parts of California. Um, and yeah, I, I think the, the jury's out in terms of what whether or not we'll do what it takes, as you say, to, to handle a situation that can potentially get better with with the will um, to do what's right. Let me go to Chris in Napa. Thanks for waiting, Chris. Go right ahead.
4: Yes, um, I'd just like to remind the listeners that these catastrophic fires are happening all over the planet. It's not just Napa. Australia almost burnt to the ground. Oregon burnt last year. We just had a horrible fire in Colorado so this is happening everywhere. You can run, but you can't hide. Climate change is going to slap us around all over the planet. In Napa, we are deforesting by thousands of acres in the forested hills for vineyards, which is for alcohol, which is non-essential, And we worsen the conditions of our wildlands by deforesting, drying up the groundwater, causing the vegetation to be more brittle and setting us up for these catastrophic fires. So we have to personally be responsible for our own behaviors and how we're contributing to these catastrophic fires. And um, people just need to be aware that when they eat and drink, they should really figure out what's happening behind their food and their alcohol.
1: Chris, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, let me go next to Christina in San Luis Obispo. Hi, Christina. Hi, can you hear me? Yep, I can.
5: I, I live in a rural area, a, large, a very agricultural county, and I live on five acres. You know, I'm a single homeowner, and I know an issue. My, my property abuts um, a road that goes up a hill and a steeply. Uh, access point for the five or seven houses up at the top of that hill. I know I've got an issue. I've got a lot of undergrowth under my oaks. I can't afford to take care of it. I have done tree work here. It costs thousands of dollars to have just a handful of trees taken down. We need help. Us, us, you know, educate. I'm an archaeologist. I work with tribes. I am acutely aware of how knowledgeable they are about what they've done to manage this landscape that we love so much it wasn't pristine and happened in a vacuum it was carefully managed by our fantastic Californians and lo and behold after 100 years of you know them not of them being removed now we've got this massive problem but I'm the homeowner I've got five acres how am I going to pay to take care
1: of this issue I'm very aware of. Um, well Christina thanks for for sharing what you are going through Liz well I don't know if you have a quick reaction to Christina here.
2: I do. I think this is an incredibly important point. We spend a colossal amount of money fighting fire and we need to move that money to prevention. We need to give that money to homeowners like yourself who want to do the right thing. It's very expensive to do this work and we are spending the money already. So, um, it's a crucial issue that I think there's, there is some progress in getting the money towards prevention, but we also need to get it to homeowners.
1: Liz Weil, her piece in the New York Times Magazine is, this isn't the California I'm talking about wildfires, the trans apocalypse, and how we're processing it all, and why we still have reasons to be hopeful. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Laura writes, I'm a native Californian, and I perceive living here like living with a bipolar, narcissistic parent. I'm deeply connected and bound to and even inexplicably love this volatile place, but there's a high price to pay, and I must be vigilant and resilient to severe mood swings. The manic highs can be thrilling, but the depressive lows can be deadly. while well, can you talk a little bit about your trip to Emerald Bay, where you say you kind of broke down?
2: Yeah, so I over the course of reporting this piece I went to Tahoe a couple of times I went right as the Caldor fire was coming down into the Tahoe basin and then I went back after and as I drove around the lake up by Emerald Bay and I'm sure an awful lot of listeners has been have been there it is it is one of the most beautiful places anybody will ever see. You know, the lake is spectacular. The cliffs are spectacular. And there are all these old standing dead trees up there from the Angora fire years ago. And they're not growing back. Um, and not not all the trees are going to grow back from the wildfires we're having right now. And it was just a real wake-up call to me about all the stuff we've been talking about, that we've known this problem for so long. We're not doing enough about it. It's deeply impacting the world that we live in and that we need to really face this moment. It's painful, but we actually need to do it.
1: Yeah. You've talked about the fact that it's painful and and touched on it earlier in our conversation. It sounds like you really do feel like our, in many ways, our inability to execute useful solutions is because we may not quite be ready to accept loss, to, to like fully take it in the loss that will that is around us? I do think that's
2: part of it. It's very difficult to let in the climate crisis. It's truly overwhelming and we haven't been doing it. And I think that just the psychological difficulty of the whole project is really a part of what's going on. And another piece of the puzzle that I think is difficult as well is we have to find a way to let all of this in and not just become nihilistic and throw up our hands and say, it's over, we're post-apocalyptic, it's done. We need to find a way to apprehend all this and still work towards a better future and still find a way to have optimism and be functional in the face of what's going on.
1: And in many ways, your piece is a way to do that. But is there is there something that you learned from this process of reporting as well that's really helped you?
2: <laughs> you know, yes. Or I think this whole process helped me. I think one thing that I touched on earlier is that everybody I know who's really taken a deep dive into all of this stuff has gone through a period of grief but almost everybody has also come out the other side feeling like it's a fight worth fighting and we can make progress. And so I think it's helpful to know that that like all kinds of grief, it's a process and you will not stay in the darkest part forever that you can work through it. Um, and to me, at least, that was really, really helpful.
1: Well, the writes, I'm a senior and a native California. I have worked in the environmental movement for decades. And in the last 10 years, I've come to recognize the foundation of our culture in California has put business and power over humans and earth. The roots go deep in religion and politics as we have been char- charged with utilizing the earth to generate material wealth As far as I can tell, we need to change the foundation to include a diversity of sensibilities from all genders, ages, religions, and incomes going forward, addressing our relationship to our environment and each other. Well, thank you, listener, for that. And thank you, Liz Weil, for coming on today to talk a little more deeply about the piece that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine. Thank you so much. Again, listeners, the piece is, this isn't The California I Married, and Liz Weil is a feature writer for New York Magazine. Thanks so much for weighing in today. Grace Wan and Susie Britton produced today's segments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.